Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today, I'm joined by Brad Moldenhauer, Mark Lueck, and Ben Coral, members of the Office of the CISO here at Zscaler. We're taking a look back on the year 2022, some of the key learnings from the year, and some of the things that we're starting to see on the horizon that are an outcome of what happened. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining us today on the last episode of the year. Glad to be here. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate the opportunity. Ben, right before we got on, you were mentioning some of the shifting tides around ransomware and whether or not organizations are starting to pay or not actually pay. And one of the things that you had mentioned was the difficult situation that some organizations are really finding themselves in. And namely, one of those was what is going on right now in Costa Rica. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you take a look at this, you, you've got these these government organizations and they get hit with ransomware. And rather than continue to you know, proliferate, they're refusing to pay a ransom. Hey, that's commendable. You know, we, we like to see it. But then the attackers, they're starting to double down. And in this case, they then went and took over dozens of other government sites and are really looking at you know, taking down a government. So your tax system is now down. Well, taxes, that's income for the government. That's ground to a halt. You've got the export system. You know, the other ways of bringing in income is ground to a halt and imports, you know, your supply chains. All because they refuse to pay the initial ransomware. And you sit here and this is a government, uh, you know, well, a, a sovereign government. Now, take that and extrapolate that just a little bit where you see your proposed legislation from other governments that are saying they're going to make it illegal to pay a ransom. And again, I'm not advocating ever paying a ransom, but it's a business decision. But if we now make it illegal for organizations to be able to pay and they can't get their their business, their organization, they need that data back. They need those systems to be back. And if paying a ransom you know, of, say, $2 million can get them back up and operational, within a week or two, instead of within a month or two? Is that something that should be illegal or not? Again, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but you sit here and say, what, what's right, what's wrong, what's, and is a government who makes those payments illegal? If that business is you know, supposedly gonna go out of business and they're not allowed to make a payment, does that mean the government's gonna step in and bail them out? Where is that line gonna be drawn at that point? So, so it's really, yes. I, I, I just wanted to, to, to play devil's advocate for a minute and <laughs> really respond to, and that's this. When was the last time that a company went under due to a cyber attack? A sizable company. A sizable? We've, we've always talked about it. We've always suggested it could happen, but actually, actually, it hasn't. Is Costa Rica going to be around next year? Absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be there. And therefore, I, I, I want to make sure that we put this into perspective. Yes, it's a business decision, but it, we there. And, I, and again, I'm not advocating paying it either, but I am paying or legislating to, to not pay it. But the point here is that sometimes the 
risk is not as great as the fear of that risk. And so perceived risk versus risk in reality. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if we sometimes, perhaps it's our profession, perhaps it's our natural disposition to overstate the actual long-term impact of these events. The one example, which I'll, which is the counterpoint or the opposite of what I'm talking about, is Maersk. Maersk could very well have gone. That may have ended the company. It didn't through a combination of luck and hard work, but they did manage to recover. So I, I guess I just want to say that it's quite possible that maybe this is the right, maybe a bit of pain to get us through there will actually have the impact of ending ransomware as a threat because it's no longer pay, doesn't pay. No, no, and I like that. I mean, and it's like, how do you combat from this? Uh, or why would you not pay? And companies aren't paying now because their backups are better. They're better prepared. Uh, you know, ransomware is less impactful to the organization because they put segmentation in place and it hasn't hit their critical data. But again, this is that you know moment of, wow, our crown jewels have been encrypted. And the reality is, have they just been encrypted or have they also been lost? Did they get copied out as well? So I'm not trying to sell FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt here, uh, but are we downplaying it and saying that a company could, in fact, go out of business? Or to your point, Mark, would that be very improbable? I actually wrote an article that was published on Dark Reading about a year ago, and it was on this very topic. And the, the scope of that argument was, believe it or not, my uncle was a small business owner. He actually owned my father's HVAC company after my father passed away. And they went through a ransomware attack, and I actually guided them in responding and mitigating that. And, you know, if you guys want to find the story, you can see the outcome. But look, long story short, after calling the authorities and really working with his outsourced IT provider, we came to the conclusion, all of us collectively, to pay uh, essentially a $3,000 ransom to get his 10 machines unencrypted so his servicemen and technicians could respond to those residential calls that day. So having lived through that personal experience of assisting a small business with a ransomware attack changed my perspective because, Mark, I'm of the same school of thought. I grew up in D.C. and worked for a number of three-letter agencies, so I would always veer to the side of not pay. But a stance on ransomware payment needs to consider small and mid-sized businesses because that's where my concerns with what we're seeing proposed today, right? Unfortunately, the reality is we can't expect to see a ramp up in down market CISO jobs because that's essentially what I was playing. I was playing the role of a CISO for... A company of about 40 people that have $4 million in annual revenue who just had nowhere near the expertise that bigger organizations have to actively respond to such an incident and take control and, and guide them. So it, it changed my perspective a little bit on it. This is an ongoing challenge with the mid-sized market where they may not have the resources available nor the expertise to be able to either A, create a plan for remediation of the potential risk, and B, even less so to respond. What would you say to an organization that's staring down the barrel of this particular cyber risk? What might they be able to do outside of, I have my backups ready to go, and that's literally my last contingency plan is going to be my first line of defense. I think while well, these ransomware gangs were getting their beachhead, they were encrypting a business's data, and they were sending the ransom demand, and they were never hearing back. And you know why? Because we upped our disaster recovery in our business continuity games. 
primary, secondary, tertiary cloud backup. We would restore, reconstitute data, find the vector that was exploited, plug it, and move on. So these guys were like, well, <laughs> you know what? We're not just going to give up on ransomware. We need to modify our attack path to deal with this countermeasure. What did they do? They started exfiltrating the data before they encrypted it. Hence all these extortionware attacks you see. On the payment thing, look, <laughs> either way, it's a tough call, right? Well, I'm still not a complete advocate of paying a ransom. Personal experience taught me there are conditions where it makes sense. I just believe that there's a middle ground there that can be used for information sharing, which was a tenant of the recently released cybersecurity executive order that Biden signed. So if the decision was made to pay the ransom, I think the company should disclose their decision criteria on how, why, and who of that decision-making outcome, right? So of course, piercing the protective corporate and legal veil makes this an almost impossible reality. But the upside would be the information sharing that enables a company's shareholders customers, other stakeholders, and the government to evaluate whether the right decision was made. Can I add another tiny viewpoint before we potentially move on from this subject? And that is this. In the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, bribery was common in corporate culture because there were cases, and I'm going to play back your words, Brad. There were cases where it made business sense to in include bribes in the way we conducted businesses in various jurisdictions because it was necessary. I think we'd all agree that it was the right thing for government and legislation and corporate governance to stamp out bribery. And guess what impact it's had? It has reduced the amount of criminal activity and abuse of positions and has made business a more straightforward process and had and created less abuse in those areas. And I think that a bribe and a ransom are just two sides of the same coin. I researched this when I was writing that article, and I think Ben mentioned it. There's that notion that criminalizing ransomware payments would essentially put an end to the ransomware pandemic, right? And I think that has some credence because I do believe that is a much more strategic than a tactical viewpoint, obviously. So criminalizing ransomware payments could undermine the motivation to attack, right? I mean, that's the obvious benefit. And the belief is that the perceived attacks would plummet near zero. There's a real argument to be made that paying digital ransoms could be aiding embedding terrorism, and it certainly does so for cybercrime. Something that we've seen over the years in terms of ransomware growth is the various vectors that they've been utilizing to infect, or even in the case of spear phishing attacks, leveraging other channels, non-traditional channels, for example, cloud applications, the use of shared file services that are trusted by an organization. We've also seen a rise in targeted social media campaigns that are attempting to provide malware to targeted executives or administrators across various social media channels. In some cases, they're just kind of spray and pray campaigns, but in other cases, they're very targeted. The social media situation as it stands is in a very interesting place. Mark, earlier this year, we started seeing the outcomes of some of the things that had happened in 2021 with some of these social media companies where they weren't really taking the right steps 
to ensure the privacy of individuals that are utilizing and consuming their services. And in fact, a, a large video game manufacturer just recently had a half a billion dollar ruling against them for also not protecting privacy. So when you look at all of these services, even the video gaming space, we're starting to see some pretty large outcomes that are negative to their business, but obviously at some point they've made some sort of risk decision that it was worth it. Mark, do you see the continuation of usage of these types of services? And many that use them may not be fully aware of what's really at stake in terms of either their data, or do you think it's more along the lines of, and I've heard this from many people saying, well, I have nothing to hide. It doesn't matter if they have my data. I've already been compromised multiple times. So let the governments do what they're going to do and find these organizations. Or are we on the cusp of something much larger going into 2023 around this particular way that we look at personal privacy and the expectations that we have when utilizing internet-based services, in this case, social media? Well, remember, I'm coming to you from Europe, and Europe has been at the forefront of the privacy war, if you will. And I do believe that you know, 2017, with the drop of 2018, with the drop of GDPR, um, was the beginning, were the first opening shots in this war. And I don't see that finishing or even coming to a crescendo in 2023, but I do see this ongoing. What I find very interesting is that there's a huge distinction between what an individual thinks about their privacy or privacy and what governments and corporations think about that. And that, that incredible dichotomy, people don't seem to care. And yet people are very comfortable and want to, and want to protect their rights, but they're quite happy to give those rights away at the drop of a hat when they have something of some perceived value. I won't name names, but Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and things like that, where there is a perceived value, but I'm not going to even think about what I'm giving away in order to, to gain this, this valuable service to myself. So no, is next year going to be any different from this year? I don't think so. But those, the war is in progress, and I think it's going to be another generation before we really have people who care about those rights that they have, yep. the right to privacy. A generational change this is going to require. This is not going to happen in 2023. This might happen in 2053. No, absolutely. And, and to Mark's point, my last organization was a very EU-focused and global organization. And it's always been surprising to me looking at, from a U.S. perspective, the privacy or people not caring about their data. And every time I go inside a coffee shop, you, know, you can find a little fishbowl with business cards. A business will say, you know, drop in your business card for a chance to win a free cup of coffee. So you're giving away your personal information, not even getting that cup of coffee for the chance of somebody to win that cup of coffee. And people are just dropping that business card left and right. And it's just always just blown my mind how quickly people are willing to do that. Shifting back uh, what you're saying a moment ago there, Sean, of some of the, the data can be lost. And yes, you're right, Mark, with GDPR coming out there with the ability to levy fines. 
But you've got that initial fine versus then what's going to be negotiated down. So sure, that shock and all that's out there. But for the risk perspective, the likelihood of losing the data, the likelihood of having that full fine leveraged against you versus the ability to not change and to continue to operate you know, life as usual. That And a lot of organizations are saying, what's the very minimum we can change to adhere? And it's not, let's do the right thing. It's let's build a minimum viable product so we can get by. And if we do get the data lost, we can say we did X, Y, and Z, yeah, EU, and uh, try to sit there and sit, leverage that down and say we did the right things. We should not be fine the, the maximum at this point. And I think way too many organizations and businesses are taking that approach. Well, we've seen this uh, historically with compliance-driven security programs, right, where an organization is saying, look, I'm having difficulty making the business case for why we should do this, whether it's continuity of operations, whether it's protecting the consumer, whether it's protecting the employees. In very high-risk organizations with a low-risk tolerance, cyber protection and specifically information risk management as a discipline is taken very differently than, let's say, your mid-size or even large-size organization where that may not be their bread and butter in terms of what it is that they do. However, what we've seen is that data is the new currency effectively of every organization. We're seeing this paradox between the data matters, it's important that we keep it, and we work so hard as an organization to call all of this data from various sources to then be able to create proprietary insights into data, but then many of those same organizations don't really protect the IP that they end up generating from such an analysis. We're seeing two things happening at the exact same time that are really contrary to each other, because I would presume that if I'm in the data analysis business, like many of these social media companies ultimately are, I would be focused almost squarely on ensuring that those insights gleaned from that analysis are protected, since ultimately that is the differentiator between one platform or the other. What do you guys think? That differentiator has yet to be and have a dollar pound euro value. And that's a key. That's, we're not there yet. And that is the privacy war I was describing. When a business comes in and says, we can, we can produce business value at no risk to our consumers or our bystanders or whatever is privacy, then we have something really interesting and we have a, a competitive advantage and that's changing the marketplace. Very similar to companies being green. 30 years ago, it was not a competitive advantage to be green, to be conscientious about your environmental impact. It might be at your bottom line. It might be that somebody in charge had a personal feeling about this, but it wasn't a competitive advantage. Right now, it's a competitive disadvantage not to be. So I see that is a, as a coming battle that it, it will come, that will be something that happens. Right now, it is not even discussed. Except you know, yeah. And you know, something just kind of reflecting on what I've seen throughout my professional career when it comes to privacy by design or whatever you want to call it. I, I remember back when I was an undergraduate in the mid nineties for an auditorium size class, and you guys might remember this too, whenever they would post our exam results, 
they would post a piece of paper in the auditorium with 200 people's social security numbers on them in their grade next to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, you know, fast forward a few years in the late 90s, and I'm working for a federal agency. And of course, there's no such thing as a Koch product. We need to internally develop every application in Delphi. And I remember they would have an application for the federal like bus ticket register that would have the passenger social security numbers. Remember we went through that big, well, because Mark's here, I'm going to say the National ID Reduction Act. So I think that generally organizations are doing better because remember, all of them are technology providers now. So they're doing a lot better with minimizing, not all of them, but most of them are doing a better job of minimizing the personally identifiable information that they possess to make their product economically viable. And I think that that's, that's a big start, but look, there are just some, and obviously social media is a big one. They're just going to have troves of personal information. And when they have that much data, they're always going to be thinking about ways to monetize it. And that might be their business. And, and that makes sense. I mean, organizations and or individuals utilizing similar services, I believe they're, they're signing up for a lot of that, realizing that that's part of the, the balance of trade to use such services. However, when some of these applications in the case of cloud-enabled services, whether that's food delivery or rideshare, we're also seeing those data being compromised. We're observing is that there seems to be a, a non-reality or a make-believe story around the control that the head of security or the CISO actually has on the entirety risk posture of the organization. Now, I say this knowing that many security leaders are very much in tune with their organization and their business, in particular, driving the best program that they possibly can. We've also, however, seen situations where even though those things are being done, organizations are starting to apparently turn against their ease in the cases of cyber incidents and how that cyber incident is handled. Even if that organization, because of the fact that they're signing off on risk criteria, they're signing off on the risk assessments. I think we've all known organizations that have a 15-year vulnerability and it's been risk assessed to death every year and they just kick it down kick it down, kick it down the road, hoping that nothing ever negative comes out of it. But mostly it's done to appease the auditors because they say, hey, we know that you need to get this done. And yes, yes, we're signing off on the risk. We approve it. This kind of thing has been going on for a very, very long time. However, now we're starting to see security leaders be held into very serious accounts. Said things that they have done, the moves that they have made. But we're also seeing organizations putting their hands up saying, not it, talk to this guy or this gal. They're the ones that made that particular decision. It's their program. Now, Ben, I, I'm curious, what have you seen in terms of where the buck stops in terms of cybersecurity decision making when we know that all of these industry level problems yep. continue to percolate? Nah, and, and this is a, a double-edged sword here. So I'm going to start with, uh, you know, we as the the CISOs have been begging for a seat at the table or throwing our hands up, invite us to the table, invite us to the discussion. So finally you get invited to the table and then all of a sudden, oh, you're being held accountable. And all right, 
So are we business executives, security executives, or just technology executives? But once you're invited to the table, now you're going to be held accountable as well. Uh, but how much control does the CISO have? And can they stop things? Can they, you know, the old adage of the, you know, CISO's organization used to be the office of no, you know, uh, got it. Uh, so how much control is still there? Can the CISO really make those business decisions to say, we will not do this? And I guess it really comes down to, in my opinion, who owns the risk, right? That's generally not going to be the CISO. Is there a risk officer? Does legal own it? And at the end of the day, who accepts that risk? So yes, this is a hotly debated topic. Uh, Yeah, I, Ben, I can't agree more. And I, um, I've, I've believed this for several years and I think reporting, to a, to a general counsel for a number of years really kind of helped me see this. But I, I once I got to that stage in my career, I started looking at risk from three lenses. Business risk, which essentially was the, is there long-term shareholder degradation? Customer risk, is it impacting our brand? Is it impacting revenue? And then, you know, public or societal risk. What's the pervasive impact, right? And I have been advocating for the equivalent of a Sarbanes-Oxley law for cybersecurity in blogs that don't get read by anyone for a long time. But I mean, just the whole idea of having corporate officers attest to the integrity of their controls. And when their attestation is wrong, there's personal liability as well as corporate implications that would affect the shareholders. I'll tell you, I mean, I think that would be powerful, but you know what the issue is on this? Think about it. And I've been been giving this some thought and I I don't know what we want to call it, buy on breach. But if you look historically at every major data breach that's been disclosed, by and large, there is no long-term shareholder degradation of shareholder value, like short-term sell-off, sure, emotional, uh, but no long-term shareholder decline. So from that perspective, it doesn't matter if your job is to grow that value in the long-term. And the other thing I would submit is that most business leaders provide lip service to cybersecurity versus like really focusing on it. And I mean, the fact is I I read something from the National Association of Corporate Directors like two years ago, and it was astonishing. It was, don't quote me, but 60 to 65% of corporate directors said that they would compromise on cybersecurity for a business objective. I I find that fascinating, Brad. So there's two things I wanted to say to respond to that with. One was that wouldn't it make sense if the people that own the reward own the risk? But there's a problem with that little thing. So whoever owns the opposite reward, because uh, obviously every risk has an opposite re- an opposing reward, it would make sense, and it would make it makes perfect logical sense for that to be the same person or same unit. Unfortunately, a person who owns that reward uh, is extremely rare for them to understand what that risk means and how to do anything other than deliberate lip service. Yeah. But rolling together a couple different topics that we've been discussing today, and one I mentioned earlier. Isn't that interesting that you're talking about in criminalizing bad cyber IT, but look at the same type of thing I was talking about before, environmental impact. Who 
prepared about the environmental impact. I could make a business work. I could make it sing. I could make profits. And I was causing damage to the rest of the, to the, to the world in the same, at the same time. I didn't care. I made my profit. We have not necessarily, or maybe we have criminalized that in certain elements. We've certainly made it no longer incredibly profitable to do so. And isn't it maybe a good analogy to use for cybersecurity? Because what is the risk of doing cyber badly? The risk is, is it to your business? Because no, you've proved it. Look at the Sony reach. Immerse came back. Target came back. All of these companies with big, giant breaches, they've all come back. It's all like, that's in the rearview mirror. But what is the actual damage? The actual damage isn't that incident. It is the fact that the criminal, the criminal activities have become and continue to be incredibly profitable, and it makes the world worse for the rest of us. Just like polluting in the rivers, just like chucking plastic in the seas. Isn't that perhaps the analogy we should be using for cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. That we need to collectively improve our game to make collectively the world a better place. Spot on. Well, I think that would make sense if everyone was on the same page in terms of the importance of some of these outcomes. And I believe fundamentally that is at the core of a lot of these challenges where one organization may say it doesn't really matter. It's not critical. Others say it is. And then ultimately the consumer is always caught in the middle. And I think we see this a lot with legislation where organizations, some of them decide to work around it as much as possible. And on top of that, also looking at it from the perspective of, well, I'm going to risk it. And ultimately, we all work in risk management in some form. And aside from not following the law, which obviously that is just criminal, is there an argument to be made when somebody says, let it roll, I'll just see where this goes, pay the fine, doesn't much matter what the outcome is because I need to focus on execution, whether it's revenue, whether it's branding, whether it's uh, market share, all of these things that drive a lot of organizations and these types of things start taking a backseat. Yeah, but to, to go back to that same, what did it require to get the change that we see now in, in corporate responsibility around environmental impact. What did it take? It took an incredible sea change. It took a societal change, but it also took some brave government decisions. And I looked to the U.S. and the EPA of, I don't know what year it was, 78, in the 70s anyway, the Environmental Protection Act uh, and the California Emissions Rules. These were decisions that were taken that did not really have a societal level impact for 30 years. But maybe we should be thinking about making those small changes now. I think those are really great insights. And when we think about the idea of additional legislation, it starts becoming uh, a little scary to some some individuals where all of a sudden the liability is no longer a question. It's simply a fact. And I think there could be a lot gained there where it's no longer a question of, well, who's really on first, who's really ultimately responsible. And hopefully that would lead to a shift in how organizations treat both the role and the importance of their particular charter that they have.
And exactly. And also as responsibility and liability shift, um, we have to ensure that those the liability does reside with those who are actually responsible for making mistakes rather than necessarily those who are just holding the reins when it goes wrong. And I think this is where something you touched upon earlier, Brad, about the NACD providing guidance yeah. around board of directors. But how do you see the need for increased cybersecurity expertise? Is it necessary? Is this really just a business conversation that needs to be translated? Or is there something else at play here that needs to get addressed at a much more basic level in terms of how organizations are run? Yeah, so it's interesting. One thing that I am seeing related to this is that I think historically, most CISOs have kind of come from the information technology space. So when they consider risk, they're looking at it only from that lens, right? And I'm starting to see a major shift in that to where they're becoming more of what I would call like true business administrators. So when we see and we hear that, hey, the influence or the opportunity for this role to really make the most impact that it that it it's ever had in its short existence, I, I mean, yeah, we are on the precipice of that. And you know, one thing that I I did I did want to uh, talk about here, and I I'd be curious to get your guys' perspective on this because. You, you, you just don't make that transition. But I have had conversations with a number of peers and, uh, you know, just uh, other individuals that I've engaged with is I have noticed there's a real misunderstanding and, and not just from CISOs, but from a lot of security practitioners when making a risk decision or choice about acceptance. Accepting a risk is a business process. It's not a control. And if I were to expand on that, when you accept a risk, you're making an explicit decision, often using an implicit form of consent that results in no, no formal assignment to the risk owner should the risk manifest. I find myself doing a lot of coaching in that. Mark, Brad, and Ben, thank you for joining us on this look back of 2022. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.